Semiconductors. They power almost any smart device you own. And along with toilet paper and lumber, they're in short supply, thanks in part to the COVID-19 pandemic. The local Ford plant and automakers across the globe are facing a major setback. They've changed schedules, shifts, and at times even closed, all because of a parts shortage. How do we prevent this from happening again? Is producing more semiconductors right here in the U.S. part of the solution? That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. So, Michal, the pandemic has really shined a light on something that most of us don't really think about that much, which is supply chains, which is, you know, the complicated system and all the you know things that have to come out just right for the everyday products that we use to arrive in stores and be there for us. Everybody remembers back in the early days of the pandemic when toilet paper was running low. That was a crisis. But then it was much more serious, too, with things like ventilators and COVID tests, vaccines, specialized items. Basically, anytime there's a disruption and there's much more demand suddenly than supply, we start to feel it right away. The latest product we're running a little short on is lipstick. I guess because people are getting out there and they want to look good and uh, they didn't really need lipstick for the last 12 months and now suddenly they need it again and the suppliers weren't ready. Well, apparently there's also a shortage of chicken wings. I'm not sure what the explanation is there. And there was also a recent shortage of garden gnomes. Did you get one, Brian? No, there's no place like gnome. <laughs> and there's no place for gnomes because I can't find them on the shelves. That's right. Anyways, it's really interesting because, you know, we're listing all of these things, some of them maybe not garden gnomes, but some of them seem so ubiquitous and they are really, really easy to just take for granted, at least pre-COVID. Yeah. And one thing we take for granted is that all the electronic devices that we use to talk to each other, to browse the internet, to do everything will be powered and just the technology behind it will arrive on time. And that is not true right now because we are experiencing a big shortage of semiconductors. It's especially affecting the automotive industry. Ford has halted production across eight plants in North America, and the company expects the shortage to drop its earnings by as much as $2.5 billion this year. So this is like a really material impact on the business. And it's not just cars. I mean, because chips are in everything. Samsung said that they might skip the launch of the next Galaxy Note smartphone due to the chip surge. So it's really hitting people in a lot of different ways. And part of the reason, a big part of the reason why we've seen these shortages across the board in a variety of different products and sectors is because it's been so hard to forecast demand during COVID. So some things have gone up and then down and vice versa, and it's just been harder than usual to forecast, basically. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, it also gets very political at times and regional because a lot of manufacturing is done in Asia. Uh, some of it is done in China. And so there's a political factor to this. It's just very complicated, Michal. Let's take a step back here and remind everybody what exactly a semiconductor is. This is one of those things that you feel like you know until somebody actually asks you what it is and you have to explain it yourself, which is pretty hard to do. So that's why we asked Margaret O'Mara to do the honors. She's a professor of history at the University of Washington in Seattle, and she studies modern American history and especially the history of the tech industry. 
The semiconductor is the device at the heart of every digital device we use, every piece of hardware that makes it digital, that makes it go. What the steam engine was to the 19th century, the semiconductor has been to the 20th and 21st. It's powered the digital revolution. It's a very complex, very small, very powerful piece of wiring and metal that's very intricately fabricated to allow computers and all the devices we use to do all the things they do. So a lot of these big chip manufacturers are based in Asia. A lot of the production comes out of Asia, but it wasn't always the case, right, Mahal? The semiconductor industry actually started right here in my backyard in Silicon Valley, where chips are no longer made at all. But this is really where the roots of the American tech industry and chip manufacturing overall started. Semiconductors are why Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley. Silicon semiconductor technology was really the first big homegrown industry in the Valley, uh, starting in the 1950s. Today, the Fairchild Camera and Instrument Corporation ranks as one of the largest U.S. suppliers of semiconductor electronic devices. And of course, despite the fact that Silicon Valley is still called Silicon Valley, we do not manufacture wafers in Silicon Valley anymore. So what has happened there? Give us the snapshot of what's gone on. Semiconductor manufacturing moved for the same reason that a lot of manufacturing moved away from the United States. It had to do with labor costs. And it had to do with technological changes in the technology and shipping that allowed for things to be built on one side of the world and then shipped to the other side. About 35 miles southwest of Tokyo is a semiconductor factory where transistors and diodes, the heart of Sony products, are being mass produced. The pull of places like Taiwan and Singapore and Japan was not just because there was cheaper skilled labor. It was also because of governmental policies that these countries were putting in place intensive investment in research and development, building facilities, building, creating an infrastructure for this very sophisticated manufacturing industry to move overseas. And semiconductors, unlike cars, for example, they're small, they're light, they're really easy to transport. The semiconductor manufacturer actually was one of the earliest things that was sort of blooming in Asia across the Pacific, um, where you have California-based and Texas-based semiconductor manufacturing that's moving over to Asian nations because it was easy to transport. So, Michal, I think a question that a lot of people might have is, if we're running short on semiconductors, why can't the big tech companies just start manufacturing them here at home in the U.S. right now to make up for the shortfall? Yeah, I think the problem, Brian, is that you can't just build these factories overnight, right? Andre Burkotsky works at the international consulting firm McKenzie, and he studies the global semiconductor industry. Here's what he had to say about the challenges of getting these factories up and running. Lead times for new semiconductor tools are easily between 9 and 12 months. To build a new semiconductor factory, it takes more than a year. To qualify all the products there, bring them up to yield, takes another nine months or up to one year. So if you would decide today that you want to go ahead and build a new semiconductor factory, it will take you two and a half years until you get the product out of it. Okay, I want to ask more about the lead time for ramping up. You said nine months. Why is that? 
why it takes so much effort for a semiconductor to be produced has to do with the fact that we are operating really at the boundaries of technology. So we are now talking about machines that produce structures, five nanometers, right? Five nanometers is much, much, much less than one hair, human hair. That is the precision you need. So we are talking basically about bringing atoms in order and doing it millions of times exactly the same way so that the whole thing works. One piece of dust and the whole circuit, the whole IC, the whole chip stops working. This takes time for all these parameters to be tuned and for everything being verified before you really go at scale, right? Because otherwise you risk to produce a lot of basically very expensive waste. So what are the, the lessons coming out of COVID for the semiconductor industry? Because it sounds like, you know, with what you're describing with the lead times and this two and a half years to build an entirely new factory or fab, that's not something that necessarily can be changed. So given that, what areas can the industry control going forward? I think the biggest lesson here is that it needs a better alignment along the value chain in forecasting and forecasting accuracy. And also it needs more longer term commitments for the players along the value chain to make sure that basically they also take then the capacity if it's installed. Because the biggest fear of the semiconductor players is given the high capital intensity of the industry, building a fab can easily be five to 15 billion US dollars, depending on what is the technology you go for. So you wanna be damn sure that you will get this capacity utilized. You need minimum 80% utilization for being economically at all viable. Flooding a fab just doesn't work, right? It's not like an assembly line in an automotive plant where you just say, okay, well, then if we just make this faster, right? We just work a bit harder. It doesn't work. So therefore, the sweet spot, so to say, for utilization is somewhere around 90%. The minimum spot is around 80% utilization. You know, when it comes to supply chain issues during COVID, we've talked a lot about toilet paper and some of the irrational behavior behind hoarding toilet paper, right? This seems like very rational, like people are going to drive less and then they're going to drive more at some point. You know, people are going to work from home. They're going to need more laptops and that kind of equipment. Why is it not easier to forecast? So first of all, it is in forecasting. The question is also how binding are these forecasts, right? For example, the automotive industry has been very well established in a way that there is basically limited forecast, meaning that they, for example, say, okay, one month ahead, they sign up for the volume, but not more, right? There is zero inventory in the value chain because it's just in time delivery principles. In these cases, when there is a swing in the real demand, we get into challenges here. The other point is that in times where there is a certain shortage approaching, one very common reaction is that people start overordering to secure some supply. So if you need 100, you order 120 to just make sure that you get your hundreds. So it's hoarding. It's just like it's paper It's hoarding. hoarding. It's exactly <laughs> the same behavior like toilet paper, right? And I think the other point on it sounds all obvious to us. It's always a bit more obvious in the hindsight, right? But we would have expected that we're going to stay at home for a year, almost, right, in many regions. We would have expected that basically the devices we have in the office become unusable to us, right? 
We would have expected that the internet traffic increases by 50% in a very, very short time frame. So I think there are some trends that just accelerated a lot during these days, which are a bit harder to predict. So I'm curious, what really is the role of government and government policy? Where can government help? And I can kind of get the sense of where government can't help. Look, I think that in the end, this capital intensity that you need to spend upfront is one of the effects I think the government can help by providing incentives to do the build out, right? By taking a bit off some of the risk of this, or just basically improving how the cash flow works for companies. It is also true that when you look at it from a global perspective, right, there is certain regions that compete for talent, that basically compete also for semiconductor companies to be there. And I think another help that can be done is, in the end, a semiconductor is produced for a purpose, right? There is certain demand for certain industries for it, right? that might need also certain technology. So bringing these companies together with the semiconductor companies and, for example, funding some R&D research, I think the magic word is, is supply chain resilience, right? And this is where I think companies need to recognize that they should examine how stable actually their supply chain is to just shocks. Do I really know what I source? And this sounds like a very, very easy question to answer. But believe me, there are many people that spend endless hours on answering these very simple sounding questions. Actually, what kind of semiconductors are in our products and where are they produced? So it's not very easy for many people to get actually that transparency that they would need to also take the appropriate action. So Michal, at the end of your interview with Andre, he talked about the ways that government can help this situation and stimulate more development of semiconductor capacity. We're seeing that here in the U.S. Congress just passed something called the Endless Frontier Act or the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, which is providing $52 billion for domestic semiconductor production here in the U.S. And it was a bipartisan bill, which is something you almost never see these days. The Senate today will continue work on the Bipartisan U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, legislation that will supercharge American innovation and preserve our competitive edge, not just for the next few years, but for generations to come. We actually haven't seen this kind of government investment in semiconductors for a very long time, according to Margaret O'Mara, the historian from the University of Washington. The last time there was this type of government investment and partnership in semiconductors in particular was in the 1980s when the big overseas competition was coming from Japan. So this is, you know, we're kind of going back to the future <laughs> right now in 2021 with this new investment. But it shows you do need, you know, if you look back and past, you know, how did the American semiconductor industry rise to dominance? How did it get as big as it did? The government had a big role to do with it. Of course, private sector entrepreneurship did too, but it was this government subsidy and incentivizing and creating the government acting as a customer and a support to industry that really helped this very advanced electronics industry go where it did. So we've heard a lot of context about how we got here, how we got into the semiconductor shortage and the dynamics at play. But we also really wanted to talk to a CEO of a company that is going through this shortage and how they're thinking about this predicament 
and how it's going to affect the dynamics of this industry going forward. Tyson Tuttle is the CEO of Silicon Labs, a global semiconductor company based in Austin, Texas. And they make chips that go in a whole array of products you'll find in your home. How long is it going to take to work our way out of the shortage? Are we going to get to a point where we are going to have surplus demand anytime soon? Or are we going to be you know, playing catch up for a while? Yes, I think there's really two important points here. One is that I believe that the increase in demand is durable. So as we come out of the pandemic, people are going to be participating in the, in the economy. You know, this is going to roll out from the U.S. across the world, and we will see durable demand. And a lot of that demand is requiring increased usage of semiconductors. And the second thing is that to ramp up supply, these are capital investments that companies need to make in new factories. And to build a new semiconductor factory, you don't just spend the money and it's online in a month. It takes... 18 months minimum, if not two to three years. And, uh, you know, there's some element of, you know, maybe I can take my existing factory and get a little bit more out of it or add a little bit more of equipment. But the need to build new factories is real and that's going to take some time. So I think that demand is going to continue to outstrip supply, uh, certainly for the remainder of this year. And I, I believe it's going to be through the remainder of next year. And I don't see the demand slacking. Do you think we're going to see more of these global companies bringing some of their production to the U.S. as a result of all these forces you're describing? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a national security aspect of this where you want to have a certain fraction of the advanced technology onshore. I think it's more a matter of getting, you know, in other words, you don't want things concentrated in any one place. You know, you don't want you know, some sort of outbreak of conflict or an earthquake or a tidal wave or, uh, you know, having a diversity globally for our industry and certainly for the global economy is important. And uh, so I think that spreading that out and making sure that we have capacity, not just in the US, but also in Europe and other parts of Asia is really important. What do you think is going to happen in terms of government involvement and government policy, if anything? And what should happen in your opinion? What would be helpful for the US government, for instance, in terms of continuing to incentivize a robust and secure chip supply chain and what would not be helpful? Yeah, well, I think that it's really important that we operate on a level playing field. And so to the extent that countries are subsidizing industries, there has to be kind of, you got to match that because you've got to have competitive costs to be able to do this manufacturing, uh, no matter what the location is. So I think that, uh, you know, and certainly there's a national security aspect to this. And, you know, with the CHIPS Act, uh, $53 billion coming into the industry. This not just for manufacturing, but also for fundamental research and R&D subsidies. I think that that's an important component to remain competitive globally. Because when you see uh, various countries uh, you know, put out programs to make those investments, you can't be left behind or else you risk those, those industries moving to other geographies. This is an extremely competitive and an extremely innovative industry. And you've got you know, some of the brightest minds developing, you know, these devices going forward. And that's not just a U.S. thing. It's not just a China thing. It's something that there's a lot of collaboration across the globe. And you don't want to see things kind of, you know, get walled off and, uh, you know, where we do things one way and someone else does things another way. We see standards of computing and we see standards of communication globally, and we want to see that remain. The hope is that the policymakers don't start saying, well, this is something we've got to have. But in the end, then everybody could lose because uh, you end up with too much fragmentation and you, you don't achieve the economies of scale that are really necessary to, to push this forward. 
So you think a government push to nationalize supply chain would have negative consequences rather than than helping long term? Hard to see how that could actually remain competitive. And you know, you can build a factory. That factory is you know out of date within a few years. You mentioned at the beginning, the U.S. has really driven the semiconductor industry for decades. Do you think the U.S. is going to stay in that lead position? You know, I, I, I'm very optimistic about that. I, I think that some of the largest companies are based here in the U.S. You know, we, we mentioned a few of those. You've, you've also got companies like Tesla and Apple and Google and Facebook and Amazon all designing now their own chips. And uh, where they're customizing their silicon for their application, you know, whether it's you know autonomous driving in the case of Tesla, or higher speed data centers that are going into some of the large companies, or the phone, you know, chips that are going into the mobile phones that Apple's doing that are at the very very cutting edge. And so I, I actually see the leadership of U.S. based companies having been expanded here over the last five years. So I, I'm I'm optimistic. I you know I think that to the extent that we can again get some geographical diversity out of our supply chains. You know, we've also got to make sure that the talent is available to be able to, we've got, you know, about 3 million high-tech jobs in the U.S. that are unfilled because we don't have enough engineers. We've got to encourage our kids to go study STEM and, uh, you know, to take programming and <laughs> electronics design and, and AI and a lot of those, those different technologies and how exciting that is and how that's going to change the world for the better. Uh, we've got to have uh, rational regulatory environments and certainly the immigration and bringing students into, into the economy here to contribute to the economy has been an important part of the growth of our industry over the years. And so, I, you know, that's something that if the talent isn't able to come and, and work and participate in our society and our economy, those jobs will go somewhere else. And so that is a warning sign, I think, on the horizon if we don't, from a policy standpoint, uh, take some action on that front. Brian, it's interesting that Tyson ended your interview talking about how people play a big role here because Margaret O'Mara said something similar to me. It's not just an investment in plants and manufacturing, but it's also investment in people and ideas, right? So this is a knowledge economy industry. And when we look at, again, looking backwards and seeing, okay, why did the American tech sector grow the way it did? It wasn't just the companies, it was also the people who founded the companies. It was education. It was the basic research. What the government can do and can do like no other sector can and, and only the government can do in many ways is to fund these blue sky ideas that don't yet have a commercial application to give incentive for entrepreneurs and researchers to push the boundaries of the possible, you know, even though they're not sure they can sell it yet. <laughs> Again, it's investment in technology, but it's also investment in people. It's the next generation of, you know, people like Gordon Moore and Bob Noyce, the co-founders of Intel. Like you want to get those people and those Americans, give them the opportunity to build the next generation of semiconductors or whatever it may be. So hearing both Tyson and Margaret talk about this. I think it really, you know, when we drill down on the shortage in semiconductors, we're really talking about supply chains and specifically the complexity of supply chains in our global economy. And that's really an issue that is tied into so many different aspects of the business and government world. And it's also tied into something else, which is really the supply chain of talent which drives the innovation behind these products that keeps our technology advancing. Yeah, and Brian, you know, I know this is this is uh, controversial to some, but you know, 
government can play a role here in providing the right incentives, you know, education-wise for people to go into these fields to make sure we don't have those talent shortages, and also in setting immigration policies that attract people to come into these jobs from other countries. I don't think we care as much about, you know, garden gnome shortages. I don't know if we need government intervention there. But when it comes to the semiconductor industry and to all of these components, they are so critical to everything that we do every day. So you're saying it's okay for me to be gnome alone? (laughs) No, I got it. I got another one for you. Uh, Hey, Brian. Yeah. (laughs) Where do gnomes buy their garden supplies? Gnome Depot. How did you know? (laughs) All right, that's it for today. We will be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written and produced by Wyatt Orm and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. One word, semiconductors. (laughs) That's very dramatic.